y'all. Welcome to BA in Science. I'm Maggie. That's Brenna. Hi. And we can't wait to tell you all about our badass humans who also happen to be scientists. Um, so disclaimer, it's allergy season. So if it sounds like Brenna and I are recording either underwater or that we have chain smoked for seven or eight hours before this episode, it's just allergies. So sorry. It's not an audio quality thing. It really is just our horrible voices. So sorry about that first. But today is going to be a fun day and also kind of a sad day. It's part two of our Hidden Figures extravaganza, but that also means it's the last episode of the season. So sad. But we will be back in September with season four. And we're going to have lots of fun stuff sprinkled through the summer mostly for patrons. So if you're not on Patreon, go there. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, okay. So, cause speaking of which, you know, let's just do, let's just do weekly business, get it out of the way. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at BA and science. That's where we're going to post pics and source info for this episode, among other things. You can also email us at BA and science at gmail.com. If you've got something to tell us, please, please, wherever you listen, remember to rate and review or favorite or like or whatever so the internet knows you want to hear more. And I'm telling you, please go over to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and leave us a review there because that like puts us up in, in like we could actually get into rankings if you people did that because I know you're listening. So it would mean a lot to us. Go rate and like, I'll read a review. Like if you leave a cute review, I'll read it. I'll just, you know, I'm here for it. So do that for us. Um, as I mentioned before, don't forget about our Patreon. We've got lots of fun stuff on there. You can find a link to our Patreon on Facebook and Instagram, or you can just go to Patreon and search BA in Science. When you become a patron of our show, you get access to all kinds of stuff. And I have to say, we're a bargain. Like the top donor amount is only $8. And we've done 34 regular season episodes and six bonus episodes. So basically that's 20 cents an episode. Guys, we are worth at least 20 cents an episode. We are, we just are. So that's my commercial for all of our things. Now, do we have any addendums? I have a, I guess more of a shout out kind of. Ooh, okay. So I have to shout out Hannah C, who is actually a former student of mine. She just graduated. Happy graduation. Ooh, congrats, yeah. Hannah. And uh, apparently she's kicking it in Scotland, which what? I'm super jelly. Um, but she sent us some pictures because she's at St. Andrews and that is where Sir James White Black was in <gasps> yeah. school. And so she like saw where he lived and was like, they had like some display stuff and whatever, but yeah, so she sent us some pictures and it was pretty cool. And I thought it was awesome that she knew who it was because yeah. she listened to our podcast. So and Hannah C has been a big listener from the get-go. So, well, thanks, thank you, Hannah. Hannah C. And thanks for telling us, see, this is what we've been talking about. We've just been mentioning that if you want to be a person who just knows things, this is a great podcast yeah. to listen to. So, I mean, you're going to be a fact ninja. That's what we should call them. Yeah. We should call them the fact ninjas. If you listen to the show, yeah. you'll become a fact ninja and you'll just know things. So, yeah, that's thrilling. I thought that was pretty cool. Very cool. Well, my addendum is not, it's not a cool shout out to anyone. I mean, it is kind of the dad, but we shout dad out all the time. 
but I want to talk about some of the, he gave us some more insight onto computers and how they changed. Cause we mentioned what they were like at the time these ladies, our ladies were doing their computing. So yeah, there, the tubes went out, the vacuum tubes we were talking about, they did go out in the late sixties. So transistors replaced vacuum tubes because they were smaller and they didn't generate as much heat and because you would have to keep a computer room like as cold as a morgue to because otherwise they would overheat so and you still okay. need in like big server rooms you'll see that it's very cold in there because they do still generate quite a lot of heat um, mm -hmm. but one transistor could do what one vacuum tube could do according to dad so for less smaller and less heat a one-to-one -one is that's better mm -hmm. So, yeah, and also it made things smaller too. So, I mean, if we still had to have vacuum tubes, then none of us would have a cell phone, like, because our cell phones yeah. are computers that we carry around in our purses, right? Eventually they went to integrated circuits. So now your integrated circuits might have more than a thousand transistors. So again, it's super small, but it generates a lot of heat. So we'll talk about a lot more of these issues in probably our episode on actually we might talk about our first episode of our next season because of who we're um, going to be discussing but um but just so you know for those of you out there who were screaming at your devices that hey you know i know when vacuum tubes now now we all know they went out of style in the 60s much like the slide rule oh so i guess i do have two addendums because dad was over here last week um, and I showed him a slide rule. We talked about slide rules in our episode last week, and I'm going to talk about them at length today, mm -hmm. but I got out Grandpa Nelson's, and again, I'm going to talk about it in a minute, uh, but I now know how to multiply using a slide rule. It's very efficient and not as efficient as a calculator, I wouldn't say, mm. but if you didn't have a calculator, instead of doing some of these things by hand, slide rules are pretty rad, so I will tell us all about them. But I want to get that in there that when I talk about the slide rule in a little bit, I do know how to use one. So awesome. there you go. It's very cool. All right. So is that all we've got? Yeah. All right, then let's take a break and we will get into your section of the bios. If you'll recall last episode, I gave a report on all three of our ladies up until the point they were all at NACA, N-A-C-A, which became NASA. Now, Brenna is going to take over and tell us about their personal and professional lives after that. So, Brenna, go for it. What happens to them once they all get to NACA? Yeah, so we're basically into, well, for most of them, the 50s. Dorothy will be a little bit before the 50s. Um, but we'll just start with, I don't know, did you start with Catherine first last time? Yes, I, I did. did. Mm -hmm. So we'll just start with Catherine uh, first. And I'll talk a little bit about, as Maggie mentioned, their careers, but I won't spend too much time because Maggie should get into like the nitty gritty of it. So, yeah. Um, okay. So Catherine got to NASA. Well, again, it wasn't NASA at the time, but NASA. She got to NASA in 1953 um, and she was married, just a quick recap. She was married to Jimmy and they had their three daughters and they're making a good life for themselves and all that's good or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then within two weeks of being in the West Computing Group, her Catherine supervisor, who is Dorothy Vaughn, 
tells Catherine and another woman, uh, Irma Walker, actually was her name, that the flight research division requested two computers and she was going to send them. And I think we talked about this last time, but different groups within NASA would maybe like request a loan of a computer or a couple computers, whatever they needed sure. for a short, uh, you know, short period of time. And then those computers would go back, whatever. So there were a lot of like temporary loan outs. So Catherine gets assigned to one of those within the flight research division, but six months later, she was still working over there. And that was a pretty long time actually for someone to be like loaned out. And I read that it was actually Dorothy who pushed Catherine's supervisor in that um, division that she was in to decide whether he wanted to keep her on like as a permanent position or not, because that's, that was the other option. Either they would go back to their, you know, the West computing group, or they would get a permanent position or get to stay on or whatever. Oh, okay. So, so he did decide that he wanted her there and she got a permanent position in the maneuver loads branch of the flight research division. Okay. Okay. Um, so things at work are going pretty good, but um, something is going on in Catherine's personal life. That's not so great. So we talked about her husband, Jimmy, he had undulant fever. Uh, I don't know when it was, but he was youngish maybe in the forties. It was younger, yeah. right? Maybe in, this, in the thirties. I don't remember. But in 1955, he got sick again, and they initially thought that it was ambulant fever coming back kind of thing, yeah. but they discovered he had a brain tumor at the base of his skull. Oh, no. So, yeah, after seeing a specialist, he had, it was kind of complicated. Initially, the doctors were like, there's nothing to be done, and then they did get a specialist, a white doctor, um, agreed to work with them, and he had a surgery that lasted eight hours. Whoa. And after the surgery, he was really sensitive to sounds and just kind of wasn't quite the same. Um, So his daughters who were between like the ages of 10 and 15, I don't remember their exact ages, but they're like all three of them were somewhere between 10 and 15. Mm -hmm. They just like learned to keep the house quiet. They didn't invite their friends over. They like would go out to see their friends if they wanted to do something, you know, they kind Mm -hmm. of all worked around dad kind of not being quite right because in any kind of like loud noises and stuff just really bothered him mm-hmm. long story short by 1956 he was still kind of not making the same the recovery that he should have been making and they discovered the tumor was growing back and there wasn't anything they could do about it Jeez. so he was given just a few more months to live and then Catherine wrote this in her book it's I thought it was really moving so I'm gonna just quote it How does a wife process that information about the love of her life? I was speechless. The girl with all the questions suddenly had none, but the tears flowed silently. All Jimmy and I could think to do was to hold one another until we couldn't anymore. We held hands every moment we could. We locked eyes often saying everything and nothing at all. Aww. Yeah. 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 So December 20th, 1956, um, the girls said the, the girls would go and visit. He was back in the hospital. The girls would go and visit him. And then they'd go home and Catherine would stay. And so the girls had left. And then shortly after that, on December 20th, Jimmy did die with Catherine at his side. Um, and we, I alluded to this last time, but um, Catherine's dad never really approved or like gave his blessing on the marriage or whatever. Yeah. What's the story um, in that? Yeah. And it kind of, kind of miffed her at the time because, you know, she didn't think Jimmy was a bad guy or anything like that. And they had this great life and these three kids, whatever. But supposedly Catherine's father told her that he saw kind of like an early death in his eyes. Like 
I saw it in his eyes kind of thing. And so that's why he didn't want Catherine to marry him because he felt like that would be awful if he was going to die younger kind of thing. Wow. So that supposedly is why he didn't give her his blessing. Daddy Coleman had the sight? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Whoa. Yeah. Um, but Catherine, being a BA, she soldiered on with the girls. She sent them back to school in January and she told the teachers, don't take it easy on them. Don't give them pity. Um, like she wanted them to continue to be pushed in their studies because that's what she and Jimmy had planned for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she also kind of made them help out more at home and just they all kind of kept real busy, I think, mm-hmm. to kind of deal with it. Um, so then 1957, the following year, we talked about this, the Russians launched Sputnik. Mm-hmm. And of course, that really kicks thing up, things up a gear at NASA. And I know Maggie's going to talk more about that. Yep. Um, in 1958, Catherine and her girls moved into a house that they um, had built in, in a neighborhood, new neighborhood. Um, Jimmy and Catherine had actually like, just purchased land right before finding out he was sick. Mm. Um, so, but they did, they did get that house built and they moved in. Uh, Joylette, which was Catherine's oldest daughter, she graduated from high school that year. Um, and then something else happened for Catherine in 1958. She was really active in her church in the church mm-hmm. choir. So one night, um, at choir practice, she recalled that there was a new man showing up Ooh. and his name was Captain James A. Johnson. Oh. And Catherine writes in her book that she thinks the pastor did a little matchmaking because Jim started talking to her at the church picnic, like right after he got there. Kind of oh thing. man. Yeah. But they basically started hanging out. Um, they went for walks on the beach. They went to the movies, you know, those kinds so of things. Cute. And so the following year, Jim, who was only 33 to Catherine's 40 when they met. So he's a little bit younger, but not too much. Like, um, he asked, uh, she's almost a cougar. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Isn't that like, what? what is the age cutoff for that? I don't know what the, what the it's only seven years. Okay. I don't know. What and, the, I don't know. Well, what my the husband and I are six years in, in age difference. I know he's older, but I yeah, mean. Yeah, but he's older. That's different. I know, but culturally, I'm not saying in reality it's any different at all. I'm saying. saying culturally it's different. But either I think way, it's impressive that a guy who's 33 would want to marry somebody who's got three teenage daughters. That's, that's exactly what I was going to say. I like he took on three teenage daughters and he was only 33. Like, good job, good job, bro. Yeah, yeah, and they liked it. I mean, like they they enjoyed him. They got along with him. Like it was a good relationship. Like cool. they were excited that their mom had something kind of going for her again in life or whatever um so yeah uh he asked her to marry him and she said yes so they got married at their at their house and had a reception in the backyard so Catherine meanwhile is going to continue to work at NASA and do some really important math stuff um kind of big for the space race Mm -hmm. you know it's true um and it gets increasingly intense when Kennedy promises to put a man on the moon so you know yeah that wasn't as helpful as Kennedy thought it was going to be yeah but Catherine ended up working for NASA so that's really all I'm going to say about her career because she ended up working for NASA for 33 years and she saw her share of successes and tragedies really Mm -hmm. um if you think about kind of different things that occurred in space NASA history kind of between those years all of the explosions that killed people and NASA history yes there's a lot of that all yeah. those things. Yeah. yeah. Um, but by the time she retired, but successes, I mean, she helped put a man on the moon basically. She did. So um, by the time she retired in 1986, she had um, her girls are all grown up. She's got six grandkids. She and Jim were still living 
um, in that same house that they had built on the oh. land that she and Jimmy had bought. Um, and then in retirement, she would go talk to school kids about her career. She wanted to talk about how math and science were important. They were subjects they could excel in, those kinds of things. I don't really know when, because uh, probably probably before we were in school. I don't know. I don't know when STEM became like such a big push in schools of like, everyone needs to do STEM. Um, but I feel like Catherine was kind of like on the forefront of going and telling school-aged children, girls included, like, um, you can actually do math. Math is important and you can, you can do that, you know? Yeah. Um, she also just did a lot of fun stuff. I feel like she just kind of lived, uh, she retired in 1986. She doesn't die until 2020, I think. I think so like, did. that's a long time to just like kick it. But she did. Um, she it was had 34, 34 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I turned, I turned 35 into, in 2020. So yeah, that was 34 years. Yeah. She would go on trips with, she had girlfriends, she had sorority sisters, she had her church stuff or whatever. Um, she said that in 2006, so she was 88. She took boxing lessons to try to stay in shape because um, at 88, that's something you worry about. I don't know. Most people aren't worrying about staying in shape. They're I feel about like most 88-year-olds aren't worried about muscle tone. I feel like they're worried about, yeah. are they going to fall asleep before Wheel of Fortune comes on? Yeah. I think there's actually a picture of her like in her little boxing stuff um, in her autobiography. It's kind of funny because she's phenomenal. Like I'm going to try to find that picture for yeah. the Facebook page. Yeah. Sadly, Catherine's second daughter, Connie, she died in 2010. Um, so she did lose one of her daughters while she was still alive. Um, in 2012, she and her husband, Jim, moved to a retirement community. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in 2015, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And then, of course, in 2016, the movie Hidden Figures came out. And she mm -hmm. was um, kind of put in the spotlight again. Yeah. But she actually did make it to the Oscars that year at the age of 99, um, and which was quite an ordeal. Like she had to take, there's like a nurse person. I don't know. She had, she had people with her, her daughters, like, she, you know, there was a lot of concern about whether or not this 99 year old should be flying to go to the Oscars, but she I'm totally did sure, it. I'm probably sure she was probably like, she was like, I'm not going to not moon. be there. I put a man on the moon. I'm going to this party. So yeah. I think that's kind of how it was. Yeah. And then in March, 2019, her husband, Jim died and they were married for 60 years, wow. which is crazy, especially because that was her second marriage. Yeah. She was a widow. Remember yeah. and then she got remarried at 40, but I mean, 60 years. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and then Catherine died on February 24th, 2020 at the age of 101. I'm guessing of old age. Cause I mean. She was no, I like honestly, she died because she had done literally one of everything. She was, she was kind of just like, Well, good. I've literally done all the things that is possible for a human being to do, so I'm out. Or maybe God was like, You know what? I'm just gonna, COVID's about to hit. Let's just just come on home. I don't know. You know, that, you like, know what? That could be got out of it. I like that theory. So, um, so yeah, so that's just a really short summary of kind of the rest of her life. And like I said, Maggie, will spend lots more time on her math and those important contributions she made. But let's talk about Dorothy Vaughn. Last time we left her starting with the West Computing Group at NACA. And initially she had to leave her family to be able to work there mm -hmm. because they were living in, I can't remember, um, 
Farmville, I think she, they were living in Farmville and she had to go to Newport News. So she was kind of like kind of commuting on weekends, kind of. But as we discussed, like at, at NASA at this point, again, during the war, it was the focus was on flight, aerodynamics, those kinds of things. So her, her time was spent in aiding war efforts initially. Then Dorothy and a lot of the other computers were given a crash course um, on the theory of aerodynamics. They were given two hours a week in the wind tunnel so that they could get some hands-on experience so that they actually knew what they were dealing with, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was really interesting that they did that. But it makes sense if you want your computers to understand what they're working with it's going to help if they have seen it and done it. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, if they're, so. doing, if they're doing practical math and they're figuring drag forces and air resistance and thrust and things like that, it helps to know what does drag actually mean? Because if you get a number that it has a negative in front of it that doesn't make sense, you need to be able to make sense of the answer you're getting. So I think that's really smart. Yeah. So I think family life for her during this time was pretty hard. She was putting in like, 18 hour work days. She, you know, she didn't get to go home to her kids as often as she would have liked. Mm-hmm. I feel like she and her husband had a kind of a strange relationship because they were apart a lot. And her mother-in-law, I think was mostly watching the kids mm-hmm. pretty much anytime she was in Newport news. Cause remember he worked at the Greenbrier, but I don't, I don't know what he did in the off season. Like I'm not really I think sure. he continued to travel to other hotels. Yeah. So I don't really think he was around too much. And mm-hmm. I, yeah, she was mostly providing the stability in terms of income, I think, for the family at that point. Yeah, I think so. um, you're right. But after she had been there for a while, she just started leasing a bigger apartment and had her kids stay with her during like they had a break from school or whatever. And then she just decided to move them all there, which I don't think went, <laughs> went over well with her mother-in-law. And I don't know how her husband feel, felt about it, but she moved everybody there. Mm. Um so the war ends. And as I mentioned last time, a lot of computers maybe went back to domestic life, but there were still a good deal of women who liked what they were doing. They wanted to continue. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly true of Dorothy. After the war, she also had two more kids. So she had four kids at this point. Mm-hmm. She has two more kids with Howard in 1946 and 1947. So she ends okay, up with- So their marriage couldn't have been that bad. It's still weird. I mean, yeah, I don't it's know. It's definitely unconventional, but it maybe wasn't bad. Yeah. No, I don't think it was bad. I just think it was strange. Like, it's just a very strange existence of like, I don't know how often they really even saw each other at least twice what he, yeah. Or what he was doing or anything like that. But, um, but yeah, so now she's got six kids and, you know, some of them now are older and she was living at a time and in a community where your neighbors just helped out and the older kids helped out and Mm -hmm. people kind of all pitched in, but still it's pretty impressive that she's got this really long hours like a lot of long hours at Langley research labs or whatever but then also you know has quite the family life to keep up with yeah so in 1946 she was offered a permanent position at NACA or NASA as it would later become having kind of proved in her three years of being there that she was worth keeping Mm -hmm. she also did serve as a shift super supervisor for a time And then in 1949, Dorothy's supervisor, who was a woman named Blanche Sponsler, was actually taken away to a sanatorium, which is a mental institution. What? Yeah, she had some kind of breakdown. Like, so she was sick, and then she wasn't, and then 
she came back and then she was like having this art heated argument I think with herself I don't know it was weird oh, it was weird. it was sad it yeah I don't know uh, probably I I think so I can't mm-hmm. remember now I think maybe they they mentioned it in the book um in okay. hidden figures but she actually so they took her to the sanatorium she died six months later oh jeez. Um, like it was yeah it was just not it was not good but if we're gonna find a silver lining dorothy became the acting head of west computing mm-hmm. because of that but i say acting head because she didn't get the official title for two more years after that come on guys So the memo, there was a memo that was released in January 1951 that read, effective this date, Dorothy J. Vaughn, who has been acting head of the West Area Computers Unit, is hereby appointed head of that unit. Cool. Good job. So, yeah, now she's officially in charge of things, which is how she comes to give Catherine Johnson her first assignment, basically, Mm -hmm. that turned into her entire career. Entire career, yeah. Yeah. And we said there, there had been a connection between them before working at NASA, but, I mean that's kind of where they intersect within the West Area Computers Group. Sure. So as I mentioned last time, machine computers are actually starting to become a thing, starting to maybe get used in these labs and so forth. Again, there's not a ton of experts, though, on how to use them, how to work them, how to program them and so forth, or why you needed, what was it, like eight, to what I say, 18,000 vacuum tubes or something. But Dorothy being super smart, perceived that at some point those machines might just be better or faster than a person. And I think she realized that knowing computers and understanding them would definitely give her um, an advantage in keeping a job. So she got herself into some computation classes that Langley offered. And she also learned Fortran on her own. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I know we are going to talk a bunch more about that. Like I can tell you that that's a word. I don't know what it means other than it's related to computers, but yeah. So she taught it, but she taught herself like, you know, which is pretty cool. It's remarkable. It's definitely remarkable. Yeah. Um, And then by 1958 for uh, different reasons, like NACA changed to NASA, the segregation stuff was getting less and less tolerable kind of thing, whatever. The West area computers unit was actually dissolved. Oh man. Which means that Dorothy, who had been in charge for like what eight years, yeah. seven years, seven something years. like that, yeah. she was now out of her supervisory job, which mm-hmm. kind of stinks. Like now she's kind of back to just one of the one of the one girls. Of the girls, right? Yeah. There were well, after the war, there were lots of different times where they had to cut down staff and make budgetary changes. And then I think when it turned into NASA, there were more changes and cuts and everything like that. So she wasn't at least at least she wasn't like fired or let go or anything yeah you know? yeah um it was just more of like the segregation between the west computers who were the black women versus the white you know the white women the white computers that mm-hmm. was over so she just found herself with a bunch of other female computers you oh, know okay but she made herself useful and relevant and again that knowledge of fortran and like her skills with an ibm really kind of i think what kept her where she was for as long as she was you know yeah Um, I think that she's one of the best programmers possibly of the time like just based on what I read I it's hard it's hard to quantify that but no one is as closely associated with the excellence in programming that Dorothy is so I think that that was probably it was probably a big deal I know she helped with something called the scout launch vehicle yeah the scout launch vehicle I'm going to talk about that okay cool yeah that was pretty important 
from the very, very little super important. Yeah. So Dorothy ended up working at NASA until 1971. So she gave them 28 years. And by then she was 61. I read that she might have continued on if she had like been given a different like management job or something like that, but she wasn't offered one. And so she just, she retired. Sure. I don't think I mentioned her husband, Howard actually died in 1955. Oh, yeah. He died pretty young. I don't even remember now from what or why, to be honest. Um, There wasn't a lot to find about. Yeah. There's not a ton on her, but she had her six kids and then she had 10 grandkids and I don't know, 14 great, great, you know, a bunch, a bunch of family still. Yeah. And I think one of her children ended up working at NASA as -hmm. well, but I didn't find a whole lot on what she got up to once she retired but like all of our women she was active in her church community she had her sorority like I just have a have have a feeling she just kind of spent time with her friends doing what she liked to do yeah and then she died uh November 10th 2008 and she was 98 whew yeah okay so finally let's talk about Mary Mary Jackson yay maybe Maggie's favorite for sure I love them Um, all she's my favorite we left Mary Jackson in 1951 starting in West Computing Mm -hmm. so she's been working there and like I don't know two years later she gets sent to the east side to do a job and long story short on her way back to West Computing one day she runs into a guy named Kaz I mean he has a full name but I'm not gonna say it because I don't want to butcher it are you gonna talk about Kaz well no I'm not gonna talk about Kaz because I call him I mean I'm I call him Kaz that's what he's known as yeah he was known as that because his name is mostly consonants. He's Polish. Yeah, it's like I'd like to buy a vowel. I mean, he's Polish descent. He was from Massachusetts, but like. Right. But like, yeah, it's, it, yeah, you know. Yeah. So I don't know. He has some important. If you look up Mary Jackson's papers, his name will be on them, too, because they work together. Spoiler yes. alert. They work yes. together. But Mary basically had had a rough time being over in the East computing side. She was annoyed because segregation was a thing and she couldn't use the whites only bathroom and so she was like blowing off some steam about it anyway long story short Kaz is just like um come work for me so she does and Kaz puts her to work and he realizes she's very talented so he is the one who kind of encourages her to get in the engineer training program and being an engineer would be a huge deal for Mary I mean at that point in history I don't even think there were very many women engineers period I mean, you could probably count on one hand that includes yeah. whites and blacks. You could probably count on probably, one. Probably. Yeah. Like, I don't think, in the world. Yeah. you know, yeah. And so then she's again, then add in the fact that she is an African-American, not just like a white person. Right. Like, so right. an African-American woman wanting to be an engineer, like in, in the South, in the 1950s in the let's just pile yeah. it all on there well in virginia i mean because some of the state i don't know that all of the states were as bad but virginia definitely was one that was needed pretty more reform pretty segregated for yeah. a long yeah. time yeah 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 to be in this program she had to take these classes the problem was the classes she needed to take were at hampton high school which is a whites only school oh yeah so can't mary do that. Going, yeah mary was going to need special permission um to be allowed to take the classes there for heaven's sake yeah which is super stupid so in the book hidden figure she wrote about uh, mary's experience getting the permission she wrote about it like the way she described it was this it was she who had to go hat in hand to the school board it was a grit your teeth close your eyes take a deep breath kind of indignity however there was never any doubt in mary's mind that it must be done she would let nothing not even the state of virginia's segregation policy 
stand in the way of her pursuit of the career. So I love it. Yeah. Totally BA. Yeah. And I like that she didn't do it because there is no reason, no reasonable reason on God's green earth that a human being should have to ask permission to learn something anywhere ever for any reason ever. And she was just like, fine. If this is what I have to do to do it, I'll do it. I won't like it, but I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna get what I want. I just love it. I love her. Yeah. I think it was kind of tells you what kind of person she was. I mean, what kind of person or character she had that she was like, okay, I could be mad and I could let my pride get in the way, but I'll just do this so I can move forward. Get what I want. Yeah. Even though it was super dumb that she had to do it. Uh, I I did read too, that like she finally got in and was taking classes and was thinking that, well, these whites only schools must be like amazing. Right. Because where the, the, the black kids must get the crappy schools and the crap. Yeah. And she goes to Hampton High and it's like a crappy rundown, you know, not, not anything impressive. Yeah. And so she's like, if all the people just pooled all their resources and built like one really good school, then everyone would have like a nice school to go to, you know, it oh, kind see, of no, you're being lo- again, you're being logical and yeah. reasonable and segregation is neither of those yeah. things. But it kind of blew her mind because she just always assumed like, oh, it must just be much nicer. And it's like, no, it's pretty much the same as what I went to school in. And it just, yeah. So anyway, so she started classes in 1956. And in 1958, she became NASA's first female African-American engineer. BA, love it. Yeah. So then she and Kaz do a bunch of super important stuff. I can tell you what that super important stuff is. I can barely tell you. I can barely tell you. I can talk about some of the stuff she did. Yeah. Okay. I read she also taught herself Fortran at some point. Probably. She taught herself everything. If she probably also, probably she recognized like Dorothy that computers might be kind of important and helpful. So, yeah. So by 1979, Mary, who at this point was 58, made a big career change and she became the federal women's program manager. So it was like actually a step down and pay from her engineering role. Um, it's, you know, like government jobs are like GS9, GS12, or GS whatever. She was a GS12 and this was a step down to a GS11. Oh um, but it kind of sounded like she, like from what I read, it was like she kind of knew she had hit the glass ceiling as it were mm-hmm. yeah. in terms of like what she was going to do with her career. Mm-hmm. But she wanted to continue to do something to make a difference. I mean, we heard like, she loved her job at the USO. She was big in the Girl Scouts. Like she had this drive to really like help people be involved, advocate for causes that she felt were really important. Yeah, bring, bring people along. Yeah. Yeah. Like helping younger women achieve whatever they wanted, those kinds of things. So as that manager of the federal women's program, she got to take a very large role in trying to help advocate for opportunities for women at NASA. And then she did that until 1985 when she finally retired. So she did that for about six years. Yeah. And along the way, uh, didn't really specify when, but she was also very active in her community in terms of speaking to schools, trying to get kids interested in science and math and show them they could achieve a lot of amazing things if they like just got into those things or whatever. Yeah. Um, So that was again, really important to her. Um, to do those kinds of things. So I don't know a whole lot more about her life after that either, 
Um, she and her husband just have the two kids. I didn't read about grandkids or anything. Um, she just continued to be an active figure in the community. I'm sure she participated in, in her church, her sorority, the Girl Scout stuff, all yeah, that. Sure. Um, and then Mary Jackson died February 11th, 2005 at the age of 83. Wow. So yeah, there you go. That's super condensed versions of these BAs lives really with as much information as I could get for two of them because they weren't a big deal and they didn't write books about themselves and people didn't write it you know what I mean I mean yeah they weren't recognized anybody realized how how much interest there was going to be in them and the women and women like them because I think a lot of people are very interested now so I mean right well and Catherine Johnson wrote her memoir autobiography or whatever like close to the end of her life like it was one of those she didn't actually live to see it published because it was still like in that process so I mean she only did it because she lived to be 101 and had the time I mean at that point you got time to get I guess write your life story so that's why we have kind of more about her but yeah that's cool that's really cool I like that yeah I have a lot more to say about their what what was going on for them professionally just because it's math. So yeah, let's take a break. And then, and then I'll tell you about the space race and how these three women and others got the United States on the moon. Sounds good. Okay, Brenna, we need to take a minute to tell everybody about Proton Guru and the MCAT ladder. Yeah, we definitely do. It's really great. The whole idea of Proton Guru is academic accessibility. So at protonguru.com, you can find a free full organic chemistry course, a free MCAT organic course, and diversity modules related to organic chemistry. The cool new thing that just got added might be the best part though. It's called MCAT Ladder, and it's an MCAT test prep course like no other. It's prepared by a group of passionate faculty who really wanted to keep costs low. The big thing about the program, though, is how thorough it is with exceptional concept explanations and visual learning, plus questions that are challenging like real MCAT questions. The MCAT ladder is only $500. And if that's not enough, they have a scholarship program, too. So go on over to ProtonGuru.com and check out all the amazing stuff that's there. With MCAT ladder, It's all about reaching down to help others climb up, which is a very badass thing to do. Okay, now it's my turn to talk more about some of these details about the women's professional lives, but specifically what they did for math and for science and all that. So Brenna talked a little bit about the Cold War and the space race, both in part one and, you know, in our last segment, but I want to expand on that a little bit so we can understand how important the work that Catherine, Mary, and Dorothy did was to the government and kind of the whole country. If you'll recall, Russia and the United States were both fighting against the Axis powers, which was Italy, Germany, and Japan during World War II. The U.S. and Russia were a part of the Allied powers, but I wouldn't say that they were allies themselves. It was kind of a the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of situation that's Mm -hmm. probably closer to accurate. Both the United States and Russia were not cool with Germany in particular, so we fought them on the same side. The U.S., understandably, at that time, was wary of Russia because Stalin, you might have heard of him, was in charge, 
And he didn't have a great track record, what with him being a communist who executed a whole bunch of people and starved a lot of the rest. Yeah. He was the bad dude. Uh, But Hitler was at the time a worse dude. So the United States just kind of held our nose and did what we had to do. Stalin, though, was equally suspicious of the United States because he thought that Britain and the U.S. worked it so Russia, which was really the Soviet Union at this point, would do most of the fighting in World War II, and then Britain and the U.S. would just come in at the last minute and figure out the peace settlement. Peace settlements at the time were really like, who's going to be in charge of this territory now, and who's going to get the economic benefit? It was that kind of thing, and Russia thought that they were going to get shafted. I mean, the U.S. really just didn't want the Soviet Union getting any bigger, largely because they got bigger by invading sovereign countries, which has become kind of a bad habit, frankly, Russia. But this is what was called containment. And one of the best ways to achieve it was to have a lot of weapons, just in case. The U.S. had gotten nuclear weapons technology, if you'll recall, and used it to end World War II. Russia was like, Anything you can do, I can do better. And they had their own successful nuclear weapons test in 1949, which was several years after World War II ended. Then President Harry Truman, who may have been an idiot in this case, one-upped Stalin and was like, well, my hydrogen bomb is bigger than your atomic bomb. And the Soviets promptly made a hydrogen bomb of their own. If you ask anyone who was in school during the 1950s and 60s, and maybe even into the 70s, we'd have to ask mom and dad. Um, But they'll tell you that air raid drills were a very real part of their education experience. The threat of all out nuclear war was a thing. It It was a possibility, a high possibility. So tensions are high. Now, not content with keeping the Cold War on terra firma, the Soviets and the US were about to take the disagreement to space. As Brenna told us on October 4, 1957, Sputnik, which actually is Russian for traveling companion, which makes it sound just like this cute little friend, which I don't think the the United States saw it that way at all. Um, It became the first man-made object to make it to Earth's orbit. Sputnik itself was fairly innocuous, but an intercontinental ballistic missile or ICBM had launched it into space And that had the U.S. a bit concerned. The U.S. was very unpleasantly surprised the Soviets had a missile powerful enough to get to space. Um, Because turns out U.S. airspace is a lot closer than like outer space. And if the missile could get a satellite to space, it could also haul a nuclear warhead to U.S. airspace and and destroy a city with it. So the U.S. needed needed to figure out how to get to space like now, like yesterday. And it wasn't quite immediate, but less than a year later, Explorer 1 went into space from the United States, and that's when the space race really got underway. Um, President Eisenhower made NASA a thing, which Brennan has told us about, uh, but the Soviets were still kicking U.S. butt. They sent the first man into space in April 1961. Now, in a close second, Alan Shepard became the first American man in space in May 1961, and I'll talk more about that later in all of those intricacies. Um, But if the U.S. could get men into space, then maybe the Soviets wouldn't beat them in the space race, and maybe that would help the threat of nuclear war kind of fade away. Now, almost a year after 
Shepard's trip, America's John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth, which I will also have a lot more to say about. So put that in your satchel. We're going to need that later. Uh, spoiler alert, the U.S. won the space race because we landed on the moon first. So that's rad. But I want to focus on Glenn's orbit because that's where all three of our ladies played some kind of role in terms of math and science. So again, put that in your satchel. That one's going to be pretty important later. Okay. Okay. Let's start with Dorothy, though. I want to talk a little bit more about Dorothy science because we need to talk about computers. So Dorothy's rocking it as a supervisor over in the West area. Human computers were working really hard when Dorothy was there. Uh, they did all their calculations by hand because calculators like we know them weren't really a thing. And they did have slide rules. And I remember, Brenna, you asked about a slide rule. Like, have mm -hmm. you ever seen one in real life? No. Okay, so let me tell you what a slide rule is because they are mostly obsolete at this point, but they were super useful at the time. Okay, a slide rule is basically an analog computer as opposed to digital. All the computers that we use are digital. This is an analog computer, okay? It looks, it looks like a ruler, but it's only about 10 inches long and it's like two to three inches wide. If you're talking about a standard slide rule, because there are other kinds, like you could have cylindrical or circular, for example, but I'm just talking about the basic one. Okay, so your basic standard slide rule has three parts. It's got a frame, which is two strips of wood or plastic lined up parallel to each other with a gap in between them. And there are scales on these two pieces of, we'll say wood, that look like, like marks on a normal ruler, like a scale. Then you've got a slide, which is a strip in the center of that frame where the gap is that can slide, right, uh, lengthwise, horizontally along the frame. And then you've got like a runner or a cursor, which is a clear piece of plastic that you would slide along the, like it's, it like hooks onto the top and the bottom of the frame. So you can slide this little viewing window back and forth along the ruler. And it's got like a line on it so you can see kind of keep track of where you are. Okay. A slide rule uses the concept and rules of logarithms to do very, very, very large and very, very small calculations much more quickly than if you were doing them without a slide rule. Um, and you're mostly going to be doing multiplication or division. Uh, you're going to do exponentials, roots, maybe some trig, but you wouldn't use one to add or subtract. Because remember, a logarithm is just a fancy way to write an exponent. So it makes sense that you wouldn't add or subtract with one because exponents deal more with multiplying than they do with adding. Mm -hmm. I think we talked about logarithms with Henrietta, but I yeah. can't remember. I so. is, that, is that right? Okay. Well, I mean, either way, if you're calculating really huge numbers like rocket trajectories, a slide rule will go, will, will make it go way faster. In fact, if you're in aviation or accounting it, like back at, during this time, you probably had a slide rule with a scale on it that was suited to those particular fields. You could have a specialized, like an aviation slide rule or an accounting slide rule where the scales on there were specific to the kind of math that they would have needed to do commonly. So anyway, they're very cool. My husband has like his, because his, my husband's grandpa was a, was an engineer and he has like two or three antique, gorgeous antique slide rules that we have. And because when he died, no one else in the family cared. And I was like, excuse me, I want those. So they're very cool. They're, they're really 
um, again, obsolete, but they're neat. Okay, so anyway, these women were doing the computing thing and working pretty much nonstop to get the calculations completed and checked so engineers could get the US into space. Like that was the big goal. Notice I said almost around the clock because the funny thing about human computers is that we need to be fed and we need to sleep. So in terms of getting all the math done that would give the US a leg up in the space race, the IBMs that they were that were just gaining popularity were a super attractive solution for NACA, NASA, because uh, they didn't need food or breaks. And as much as I'd love to get into a history of computers and IBMs, that will be for another day and another BA. That's a different episode. But what I will do is give you a quick history of mechanical computers at NACA, uh, because they're going to be really important in like a second. So. In 1947, the lab acquired an electronic calculator from Bell Telephone Laboratories. They needed it because the machine could calculate the aerodynamic equations describing transonic airflows. And don't worry, I'm gonna talk about those in a minute. Just hold on to those, put those in your satchel because Mary Jackson dealt with that. And I'm gonna talk about it with her, okay? But they had like 35 variables in these systems of equations. Like most of us, even mathematicians, when we're doing you know, differential equations, or if we're doing, you know, things like that, we're not dealing with systems of equations that have more than like 10 variables, probably. These had 35, okay? It's a lot. Because PS, there are more than 30, there are no more than 26 letters in the alphabet. So now you're using variables that aren't English letters. characters. So okay. you're probably using Greek letters, you might be doubling up you know, it's like, yeah, it's a lot. So the machine could calculate those equations in just a few hours, as opposed to the month that it would take by hand. If you were working through that series of calculations as a calculator, you sat down on June 1st at your desk to do it. And on June 30th, you were maybe, maybe done with it. If all had gone well, it took forever, forever. But the bell calculating, uh, electronic calculator took only two seconds per operation and used paper punch tapes. So it was, and, and it was so big that like when they turned it on, the entire building would shake, but it was 16 times faster than a human and didn't need any breaks. So everyone just kind of put up with it. Okay. So in the midnight, that was only in 1947. So now fast forward, like not even 10 years later, an IBM 604 electronic calculating punch showed up, but it was soon replaced by an IBM 650. So, I mean, we're, we're getting better technology fairly constantly at that point, which, and the, that trend is still true today. I mean, how many Samsungs have come out since I got my Samsung 10? And that was like not even three years ago. So, you know, it still is that way. You're always getting upgrades and new and better. Now I read in a couple of sources, the accounting department was expecting to get the computers and use them, but somehow the engineers just, I don't know, ended up using them. They kind of just appropriated them and the accountants were out of luck. Sorry, sorry. Feels like the accountants didn't need it. Probably not as much as the people trying to shoot a man into space. I just, I'm just saying, I mean, accounting is important. I think that's very important and I deeply appreciate accountants on every level, but maybe had that column by hand y'all, because we got to get a dude in the, on the moon. So, you know, 
Okay, but the engineers couldn't just flip a switch and the data processor is like gonna work. It had to be programmed and it could only do one job at a time. And if you think about your computer, even the computer that we're recording on, I have three other tabs open. There are all kinds of processes and programs and things running. My computers, our computers today do a gajillion things at one time. These, these computers back then, calculators, essentially data processors could do one task at a time. And the human computers still had to keep an eye on the electronic computers because they had to make sure they didn't make mistakes. So it was faster, but it still wasn't perfect. And so the female computers were still pretty important despite the fact that the, and these, these machines cost millions of dollars, like a million dollars for a computer. Yeah, they were faster than the fastest human, but again, it wasn't perfect. So Dorothy sees that Computers are getting upgraded all the time. Technology is getting better and better. And she, like Brenna said, recognizes computers are not going away. So she knew she would be out of a job if she didn't remain relevant. And Dorothy did what any BA is going to do. And she made sure that not just she learned programming, but the women that worked for her also learned programming. When Langley sponsored classes, they went and got training on how to program the computers. And Dorothy, Dorothy did become amazing. Yeah, partly because of these classes, but also she just had an aptitude for it. Like, I mean, do you know, Brenna, how you, comp who, how you program a computer nowadays? No. Okay, I do, I've done it. I mean, probably some like, well, I don't know c something or plus or something i don't know yeah c plus plus is in c and c plus plus are programming languages but that's the thing you have to learn first one of the legion computer languages javascript html python c plus plus that's what i know okay so you have to learn one of these languages you have to learn how to talk to the computer because the computer will respond to different commands in different languages certain ways so you learn how to write commands in that language, and then you write the commands into a program. And the computer runs the commands and does, listen carefully, what you told it to do. Computers do not do what you want, especially not computer programs. They don't do what you want. They do what you tell them to do. Hopefully, those are the same thing. If a program doesn't do what you want, then that is your problem as the programmer, and you're going to have to figure out why it's not doing what you want. You have to figure out what you told it to do first, okay? Back when Dorothy was programming, and even as recently as the 1980s, for sure, when our dad was programming, you didn't have a screen and a keyboard to write your program like we do. I've got, I've got a monitor. I have a keyboard. When I'm programming in C++, I'm typing in commands on that. No, that's not how we did it back then. You had punch cards. Let me give you an example. Let's say Dorothy was going to program the IBM 704 to do some calculations. She had to take the engineer's calculations and convert, convert them to the computer's formula translation language, also known as Fortran. So the word Fortran comes from formula translation. Okay. You had to take the formulas and translate in them into something that the computer could work with. Okay. So once that was done, she had to take these cards and they were seven and three eighths inches by three and a quarter inches. I'm going to post a picture of them. And she had to punch holes in them because each of the cards had 80 columns on them with the numbers zero to nine in each column. 
And each number, letter, or character from the formula that she had converted had its own space and had its own number from zero to nine on this card. And each card represented one set of Fortran instructions. So every time you needed a new command, new card. Okay. okay. So obviously, some like more instructions means more cards, but the computer could only handle up to 2,000 cards at a like in one program. Oh, and if you dropped a stack of program cards, first you would cry and like, and you might even throw up. You would be so upset because you would have to pick up all the cards and hope that you put them back in the right order because if you didn't, the program wouldn't run. Neat. Yeah, so programmers at the time, and I don't know, and dad will tell us, I know, I don't know if um, he ever had to do this, but when you had your stack of cards, what you would do is you would put the first one in front, you know, standing straight up, you know, and then the next one and the next one, and the next one. So you had this, you know, this tray of cards. And then that what the um, engineers would do is they would take a like permanent marker and they would make a vertical line from one corner or a, a diagonal line from one corner in the back to another in the front. So that if you did drop them, you just had to put the line back in order and it would be in the, and it would be fine. And boy, cross your fingers because if it wasn't right, you might never find the mistake. You might have to start all over. So Dorothy learned how to do this and do it well. And she was exceptionally good at programming the computers. But that is not the only thing that she did. I mean, she programmed a lot of things, but that wasn't the total of her work. Another contribution to Dorothy's that I'd like to touch on is what Brennan mentioned, the SCOUT Launch Vehicle Program. SCOUT stands for Solid Controlled Orbital Utility Test. And what it means to us is that it was basically the bomb we strapped rockets and other bombs to so we could send them places. So to get stuff to space, you obviously need a lot of force, not just to carry said stuff, but to carry it beyond the atmosphere and then into orbit around the Earth. That's a tall order. NASA and the Department of Defense needed an inexpensive, reliable, and, sol and versatile solid fuel launch vehicle for smaller payloads. And when I say smaller payloads, I mean like a 385-pound satellite. That was a small payload, okay? Oh, and let me explain to you what a solid fuel rocket is. A an example is a firework. The solid fuel in a firework is gunpowder. It is a little, it's solid, you know, solid liquid mm -hmm. gas, solid. Mm -hmm. The type of solid fuel that a scout launch vehicle would use is probably something more like a composite propellant made from ammonium nitrate or ammonium perchlorate as the oxidizer and then either powdered magnesium or powdered aluminum as the fuel. And I thought that might appeal to you, Brenna, as a chemist, because there's some pretty cool chemistry that happens here. Through a, a series of very cool chemical changes, the combustion in this reaction is very reliable and super powerful. Um, these kinds of fuel were used to launch the Polaris missiles. And I think we touched briefly on those in Hedy Lamarr's episode, all the way back in season one, I think I talked about the Polaris missiles. Anyway. The scout launch vehicle program was really important because having a reliable and inexpensive way of getting stuff to space is just going to make everything quicker. Remember, we were in a race. We were trying to win. We had to go fast. So Dorothy and other programmers were using their skills to do the math on the scout tests. Uh, 
Uh, and most people don't know this because stuff like the space shuttle is way more flashy and they don't use, they use, it's different kind of fuel and like, like the, it's a different whatever, but the scout launch vehicle, like the thing that we strapped a 385 pound satellite to is largely responsible for the success of all of the things, including the space shuttle. When you're going to space, you have to get there, right? And then you have to do stuff while you're there. If getting there is so reliable that it's a given, you don't have to spend time working out the math to get to space repeatedly. Instead, you can focus on what you do once you're there. And that's just what the scout program gave the engineers at NASA. They gave them this reliable way of just, okay, we're in space, now what do we do? Tom Perry, an engineer and one of the scout team members at Langley observed that, quote, the scout became so reliable that mission planners could take it for granted. They focused on the science of the satellite payload rather than on its transportation system. It happens to be NASA's smallest launch vehicle, and it does not receive the same level of notoriety you would with larger system. But over the years, it has proven to be a very reliable, consistent, performing warhorse, end quote. So Scout launch vehicle is pretty cool. Again, I'm going to post a picture of what it looks like. Um, but yeah, Dorothy Vaughn was one of the very brilliant minds that made that whole thing possible. Sweet. Now, speaking of the science of being in space, let's get into Mary Jackson's science because it's very fascinating. Um, as Verna told us, Mary was eventually an engineer. And one of the places that she worked was in the theoretical aerodynamics branch of the subsonic transonic aerodynamics division at Langley. There is a lot to unpack there and I recognize that. So let's, let's get into some definitions here. Now, I did mention transonic and subsonic airflow when I was talking about why electronic computers were so important. Uh, the type of equations Mary would have worked with had more than 30 variables. She and the other engineers would depend on Dorothy and the other programmers to have the machine do the calculations, because it's a lot. Rather than having Mary wait a month for answers though, which is how long it would have taken if they were doing it by hand, she could have them in hours. So it was, it was very, very helpful. So that's kind of how Dorothy and Mary continued to possibly intersect as their careers grew. But let me, let me talk about all this subsonic transonic let me let me get into that okay quick background in 1950 there was a thing going on the, called the korean war mm -hmm. it did not end well during the conflict near supersonic russian fighter planes attacked american fighter planes american planes were nowhere near as fast as that because supersonic speed means faster than mach 1 which is the speed of sound so these planes were the kind where they'd fly past and then you'd hear them. Since this is the Cold War, everybody at NACA was really concerned about the fact that Russia appeared to be outpacing the U.S. in terms of Air Force capabilities. It's not great. So the engineers at Langley spent a lot of time making planes and eventually spacecraft that wouldn't just break apart when exposed to supersonic speeds. So we want planes, we want spacecraft that are not going to be destroyed to rubble when they're going really, really, really fast. Okay. Mary's specific line of work was in understanding airflow. She would analyze data from wind tunnel experiments for one thing. Now a wind tunnel simulates the conditions found in free flight without actually having to put a plane or a piece of a plane in the air. Initial wind tunnels weren't perfect though. 
it's a closed space, the tunnel. So when airflow is bouncing off the solid walls of the tunnel, you get interference in the transonic range. Transonic airflow is going at a speed that generates regions of both subsonic and supersonic airflow. So slower than the speed of sound and faster than the speed of sound. This can cause unequal stresses in different areas of a plane, which will literally shake a plane apart. It's real bad, you don't want it. It's not good for data either, but it's also not good for the experiment, okay? Mm -hmm. It's also not good for sending expensive planes up into the air with a living pilot in them, because if the plane failed, the pilot would be killed and the plane maybe would be good for scrap metal if they could even retrieve it. So in 1950, someone figured out that if you cut slots in the walls of the tunnel, that would make the problem go away without affecting the result that you were looking for. So that was cool. Most commercial aircraft top out at transonic speeds though. Like that's the limit of their capabilities. So the ability to take away the transonic interference would actually be best for supersonic jets. The goal at Langley was always faster, more efficient and safer everything in all things, all the time. One of Mary's assignments specifically relating to airflow was at the four by four foot supersonic pressure tunnel, which is exactly what you think it is. It's a little tunnel that generates supersonic wind speeds. Mary's boss at the time was Kaz, who Brenna told us about. Now Kaz's boss's boss's boss was a guy named John Becker. He was a division chief and therefore a big freaking deal. Division chiefs were a huge deal, okay? He did stuff with the compression of air molecules characteristic of supersonic flight. So what were air molecules doing? How were they squishing when we were dealing with supersonic speed? John gave Mary an assignment and showed her how to work through some calculations that he needed for the experiment that he had worked on. She finished the assignment and was confident that her calculations were correct. But John was like, nope, that can't be right. And Mary goes, no, they're totally right. And began rechecking everything. So after some back and forth, they discovered the problem wasn't with Mary's answers, but with the data that John had given her. She got right answers basically with the wrong numbers. That's why they didn't look right to him, but they were absolutely right based on the data that she had been given. And he gave it to her and he was wrong. So John apologized to Mary. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Which was a huge deal. And Mary kind of made herself a reputation. Like it was one thing to be good at math, but quite another to stand up to one of the best engineers in the business and defend your work. Oh, and win. Like, oh my gosh, I love her. I just love her. I really do. So Mary's doing her thing in the wind tunnel. She's looking at how rivets disrupt airflow and at what point smooth air becomes turbulent air. Turbulent air is air that's like tumbling all over the place. Airflow and smooth air are important for keeping a plane that's flying in one piece. Turbulence and weird airflow can make a plane less stable and harder to control. And you don't want to be out of control when you're going faster than the speed of sound, turns out. Now, Mary published her first paper in 1958 with Kaz. They wrote quite a few together. And she actually wrote like 12 while she was at NASA. And they wrote most of those together. Um, it was called <clears throat> Effects on Nose Angle and Mach Number on Transition on Cones at Supersonic Speeds. And we all know how I feel about titles like that, but whatever, like probably Kaz named it. I'm going to say that Kaz named it. I'm just blame it on him. So a lot of what Mary did was with supersonic aircraft, planes, and jets. 
1961, she was also beginning to work on space stuff. She still worked at the four foot SPT, but now she was testing the Apollo capsule. Eventually she was testing the, the Apollo capsule and its components. The capsule would spend time in the supersonic range and Mary was part of the team that would make sure the capsule could withstand the stress of that part of the journey. To give you an idea of the kind of stress I'm talking about, let's talk about what happens to a spacecraft when it re-enters Earth's atmosphere. So you're in space, doing space stuff. There's no air and therefore no air pressure. Cool, cool, cool. There's far less gravity, which is also cool. But as you come back to the surface of the Earth, there's progressively both more gravity and more air. Gravity is the main force that pulls stuff back to Earth. But if it was just gravity working there, the spacecraft would drop like a rock and it would be pretty difficult to make it a survivable experience. Fortunately, the air is counteracting the gravity. The spacecraft has to move the air molecules out of the way. And so it's rubbing against all these molecules, which causes friction. And in this, what we call it drag or air resistance. And the drag moderates the speed that the spacecraft is falling at. So like it slows it down. As the spacecraft re-enters the atmosphere, however, it's going way faster than the speed of sound. So now we're talking about Mary's supersonic territory. It's actually going around 17,500 miles per hour, which is Mach 25-ish. So, I mean, remember, Mach 1 is, is just, just one. It is just faster than the speed of sound. The spacecraft is going 25 times faster than that. And like, honestly, it's technically beyond supersonic. It's technically hypersonic at that point. So mega fast. But as all that air is moving so quickly out of the way of the spacecraft and creating friction, you've got something else to consider. Friction causes heat. In this case, tremendous heat, like 3000 degrees Fahrenheit. And just for a point of reference, a lightweight metal like aluminum melts at around 1200 degrees Fahrenheit. So yeah, the spacecraft is experiencing temps more than double what it takes to just melt aluminum. Those temps are capable of melting a spacecraft and cooking the human inside. Gross. It's super gross and horrible. So how do we keep that from happening? Well, one way is by body design. When you're talking about blunt bodied spacecraft, think like a light bulb shape. Uh, the body design is super important. The blunt end of the spacecraft, the round part of the bulb, would be facing down toward the Earth, and that shape creates a shock wave as it moves through the air. And it's actually pretty cool. There's some cool chemistry there because I guess that you're going so fast that as the air molecules are encountering the spacecraft, they're breaking apart into something that's like a plasma. And so the shock wave is moving the plasma around. It, it is... It is the coolest thing. Very complicated though. So this is a very much watered down version of that, but it's pretty cool. Um, the shockwave then keeps the heat at a distance and helps to slow the spacecraft's fall. But that's not going to be enough because remember, 3000 degrees. You also need a heat shield, like a good heat shield. Now with the blunt bodied spacecraft like the Apollos and the Mercury spacecraft that we're going to talk about in a minute, there's something called an ablative heat shield. An ablative meaning it breaks apart. If you're ablating something, you're breaking it apart, okay? It's made of a special ceramic material that slowly burns away 
as it encounters these high temps. Um, and so those phase changes and the flow of air away from the shock wave keep the metal from melting and the astronauts from cooking. If the heat shield fails, it's literally a disaster. So engineers like Mary had a ton of research to do to make sure that the capsules they sent into space didn't just get the astronauts there, but would also get them home safely. So Mary Jackson's work on the testing of components at supersonic speeds earned her an Apollo team achievement award because it was important. So yeah, she's kind of a big deal. Speaking of Apollo. I think it's time to talk about Catherine's contributions to math and science and the space race. Cause guys, I mean, hers are probably the most well-known and that's likely a result of the movie hidden figures, but I want to go into detail on some of this stuff because the, the movie actually does a pretty accurate job of portraying the, the things that she did, but I want to get into a little bit more of the detail on it. Cause that's what we do here. So let's start with Catherine's first assignment in the flight research division that Brenna mentioned. There'd been an accident involving a small plane, like it literally fell out of a clear blue sky and crashed into the ground. Not great. Not good. No. So NACA got the flight recorder and Catherine was to look through the photographic record of the plane's vital signs and take notes on it, like airspeed, acceleration, altitude, et cetera, over time. She spent days and days on this, converting miles per hour to feet per second, all by hand, just going through it, right? And then she would plot this data so the engineers could see a very basic graph of what had gone on. The engineers would set up experiments to recreate the circumstances of the crash, and then Catherine would get that data too and just keep crunching and organizing data. This went on for months. Eventually, through Catherine's organization of literally volumes of data, the engineers figure out what had caused the crash and some serious air traffic control regulations were put in place as a result. And I'm not going to go into the detail there because it's technical stuff, but Catherine was thrilled that she was not only getting paid to do math, but that her work, even when it appeared boring, was making a tangible difference. So as her work began to change from air stuff to space stuff, she acquired a lot more duties too. Um, the engineers were all learning everything they could about space and space technology from every source they could find, which wasn't very many of them. And then they'd present their information to each other. So instead of having everybody research the same thing at the same time, what they would do is they would have like, okay, you 17 guys, you have a topic, you have a topic, and they would all get a different topic. They would research real hard into it and they would come back and give a presentation on it and bring everyone up to speed which i think is a very efficient way of doing research it's kind of like how we do our podcast both of us could spend all of our time researching everything but we divide it up because theoretically it will take less time it probably does end up taking less time i mean it doesn't make for a shorter episode but no you know the research is probably less work than it would otherwise be so what Catherine would do was she would prepare charts and equations that they needed for the lectures, and then she'd deal with all of that while still keeping up with her daily calculations and data sheets and all that. So she's a busy lady. As NASA begins its very serious attempts at putting a man into orbit, Catherine would be a really important member of the Project Mercury team. The engineers Catherine worked with were calculating the exact path a spacecraft satellite would travel across the Earth's surface from liftoff to splashdown in the Atlantic Ocean, okay? The end game of Project Mercury is orbital flight. I've said it before, but I'm saying it again. 
basically they were going to strap a dude to a giant bomb and explode him into space without killing him. Then he'd ring around the Rosie for a bit. Then he had to pilot the spacecraft somehow, because how do you pilot something when there's no fluid and literally no one had ever been up there to try anything out? And it's not like the Russians were going to help us. You had to pilot it back into the atmosphere and then splash into a body of water big enough that would allow him and the space capsule to float safely for a bit until the U.S. Navy could get him. One tiny miscalculation and the astronaut would be killed, period. Catherine requested that she be allowed to calculate the path. She said, quote, tell me where you want the man to land and I'll tell you where to send him up, which like gives me chills when I think about it. Okay. Guys, remember, this had literally never been done before in the United States. And again, Russia wasn't talking. There weren't manuals. There was like, she, like I went on Google to learn all about this stuff. She, that was not a thing for Catherine. Okay. And she loved to ask people questions. She had a very inquiring mind, but a lot of the times when she would ask questions about this time, about about this stuff, the answer was, I don't know. So to do her figuring, she had to consider like a bajillion factors. Earth's gravity exerts a force on the satellite and has to be considered in the trajectory system of equations. Oh, and here's a fun wrench to add into the works. The earth is slightly oblate, which means a little bit flat at the poles. It's not a perfect sphere. It's an oblate sphere. Uh, sphere. Uh, Margot Shetterly describes it like a mandarin orange, a little bit squished. Okay. So that has to be specifically accounted for. Oh, plus the earth isn't standing still. You'll remember it's rotating. Uh, you better know the precise speed of the rotation. Uh, Cause even if you shoot something straight up and let it come directly back down, it's not going to be in the same place because the earth is moving. If she could select a spot that re-entry should be initiated, then she could make sure that the satellite was recovered. That was what they were trying to do. So she has to write all these equations that will allow this process of determining a re-entry point to happen. And it wasn't just like two or three equations. One equation dealt with the speed of the satellite. One fixed the longitude position of the satellite at time t. Another equation accounted for errors in the longitude. Oh, and then another equation adjusted for Earth's east to west rotation and oblation. In the end, Catherine's report was 34 pages long and included 22 principal equations, nine error equations, two launch case studies, three reference texts, two tables with sample calculations, and three pages of charts and like a partridge in a pear tree because it is literally all the things. All the things. All the things. Um, and Margot Shutterly wrote a lot about this. So I recommend checking it out if you want to know more detail than that. Um, it was really pretty cool for me to read. All of Catherine's info would go into a formal report that came out in 1960. And it would basically be the roadmap for NASA to follow in their quest to win the space race. Remember I said at the beginning in 1961, Alan Shepard became the first U.S. man in space in a Mercury Redstone 3, um, and Alan called it the Freedom 7. Catherine had done the calculations on his trajectory, but it was not an orbital flight. It was suborbital. So he was in space, but not orbiting. So he like went up, came back down, and it was a parabolic flight. So Project Mercury was going pretty well overall. Unfortunately, Russia was still kicking U.S. butt. They had now put two dudes into orbit, and one had been in orbit for a whole day and came back safe before the United States got our act together. So the problem wasn't really getting a guy to space. 
it was, as always, about getting the guy back. Remember, they were strapping a guy to an Atlas rocket, a notoriously temperamental 95-foot-high intercontinental ballistic missile. So, a bomb. And it had to be modified to propel the capsule to a velocity that would put it into orbit. Speaking of the capsule, it was basically a sophisticated tin can. If it wasn't strong enough to deal with the orbital velocity, it would explode. And yet, I'm telling you, in nearly everything I read, these issues and realities were nothing compared to getting the guy in the capsule out of orbit and back to Earth safely. Let's say that you are off by one significant figure, death. Transpose number, death. Arithmetic mistake, calculating the Earth's rotation, death. I liken it to when Dr. Strange in Infinity War tells Tony that after looking at 14 million scenarios, he only saw them win in one. It's kind of like that. So literal astronomical odds. But the day in 1962 was set, February 20th, and John Glenn was the guy who was going to do it. He was going to be the first American to orbit the Earth. He and everyone else hoped. It was like major fingers crossed. Catherine was no stranger to calculating trajectories, as, as I just said, you know, and she d- has done all kinds of other support math for spaceflight. She did Alan Shepard's trajectory by hand, which had been a success, uh, but this was different. Glenn's orbital trajectory hadn't been calculated by hand this time. The IBM 7090 that Langley was using at that time did the math. So three days before the flight, everyone is getting to their battle stations, so to speak, like mission control is getting ready. The recovery team is getting ready. Everybody's just getting online, getting ready. And John Glenn was getting ready to put his life on the line to keep America in the space race. Since it was his life, no one really questioned when he asked for the numbers to be checked. Just, just one more time. Just like, just one more time. Um, and it's not that he didn't trust the IBM. The way Margot Shetterly explains it, which I loved, Glenn trusted the guys who programmed the computer more than the computer itself. And those guys all relied on one Catherine Johnson. So really, Glenn trusted Catherine. And when he asked for that one final check, he said, this is a quote, get the girl to check the numbers. If she says the numbers are good, I'm ready to go. And the fact that a white dude was willingly putting his life in the hands of a black woman during the time of segregation doesn't make every single hair on your body stand up on end like an electrical current is running through you. Check your pulse. You might be not alive. Like it's amazing. Very cool. It's very cool. So Catherine is sitting at her desk and a call comes in. She's told that she will be checking the IBM's numbers because John Glenn requested her to do it so he could complete this mission. This was not the first time Catherine would check the computer. In 1959, she had done this exact task with hypothetical numbers that she put into her equations. The computer did the calculations and she did hers by hand and they came up with essentially the same thing. So Catherine knew exactly what to do and how to do it. She starts going through stacks and stacks and stacks of data sheets, like phone book sized thick stacks of data sheets. If you don't know what a phone book is, look up a picture. They're really thick. Okay. (laughs) She is checking every single number of every single trajectory equation. She came up with 11 different output variables computed to eight significant figures each. It took her a day and a half. Sounds awful. It sounds, see, and 
And that was the thing with Catherine. It was thrilling to her. She never dreaded the drudgery of checking the math. So February 20th rolls around. Catherine has matched every single number from the computer. They all matched. So John Glenn becomes the first American to orbit the earth. He orbited three times before he had to cut his trip short due to a problem with the heat shield, which probably made Mary Jackson and her colleagues collectively pee their pants. (laughs) I just, like I would have. Glenn got himself back to earth, which was nothing short of a miracle. And when he splashed into the ocean, he was only 40 miles off the predicted landing site. And that was only due to a misestimation of the capsule's reentry weight. Because he was supposed to be up there for like five more runs. And so I think the capsule weight would have been affected by that. And there were some other things that didn't go right on reentry. So had they yeah, not leave something attached that wasn't supposed to stay attached. To exactly. So had that had that been able to cut, like if he would have jettisoned that, the heat shield would have come off and you know, death. So anyway. Yeah. Considering that that was the only misestimation, 40 miles is pretty amazing. He only had to float around for like 20 minutes before he got picked up, which was probably pretty cool. He's probably just so relieved to be back like in the water that he was like, I'm gonna take this 20 minutes to just let the adrenaline come down because that would have been me. Um, And again, if you haven't, if you didn't live during this time, I do encourage you to go look at what, I mean, he got a parade. This was, this, he was a national hero. So astronauts were a huge, 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 huge deal. Um, And it's very interesting information to see how the country kind of reacted to it, okay? So Catherine went on to do similar work for the Apollo missions that put the US on the moon, which effectively beat out the Russians in the space race. Um, She calculated the trajectory for the Apollo 11 mission that hit its climax when Neil Armstrong put his footprints in lunar dust. Like she did that. She would say when asked, that her greatest contribution to space exploration was her work on the Apollo project. Do we agree? Like I have many thoughts on the subject. Do you want to take a break and then it's time to talk legacy? Yeah, sure. All right, let's take a break. So I mentioned last week that I thought Mary Jackson was my favorite and the woman of the three that I most identify with. I completely stand by that. Um, but Brenna, like, what are your thoughts on legacy? Do you identify with these women? Like, do you have a favorite? So tell me, tell me where you're at. I don't know. I don't love math. We've talked about that before. I mean, I think it's really cool they did, but I mean, I can't say that I'm like, oh, I can relate. Mm -hmm. I think because Catherine wrote an autobiography, I did feel like I knew, I mean, I enjoyed getting to know more about her life outside of NASA um, just because she wrote more about it yeah so I guess kind of felt like I knew I mean we don't do kind of know more about her and her Mm -hmm. personal life whatever Um, so that's pretty cool but I don't know I just they're pretty cool like they're all really talented women I I was mostly impressed with the fact that they not only had these jobs but also had like thriving social lives outside of yeah. work and managed to keep up with everything and all that. So yeah. Yeah, they're super cool. I I love Mary Jackson. She is my favorite. And I I mean I adore them all, of course. 
but yeah, the, the math side of it really appealed to me because I know how difficult, I know exactly how difficult it was. I know how, I know how hard it is to program a computer. I know what happens if you forget, like if Dorothy forgot to punch one hole, her work was garbage. Like if I forget one semicolon when I'm programming, goodbye, it's trash, you know? So it's just, it's a lot. It's a, it was a lot, a lot, a lot of work. And I have, I have the benefit at this point in history of having all of these women who have done, and men who have done this work before me, they did not have any of that. So right. the pioneering aspect of that is just, it's mind blowing. Speaking of pioneers, I have something very fun that I want to mention here in this last section as we wrap up. Catherine was a Trekkie. For those of you that hmm. don't know what that is, it is a Star Trek fan, a serious Star Trek fan. I also happen to be one. So let's like unpack that a little bit. In 1966, Star Trek came to TV. For those that don't know, Star Trek chronicled the adventures of Captain James Tiberius Kirk and the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Their mission was to seek out and explore strange new worlds to boldly go, and boldly split infinitives where no man had gone before. Dad, our dad is a Trekkie. So of course we've seen our share of episodes. You, Bryn, are not so much a fan. Um, no. No, I mean, you like Trouble with Tribbles. That's a good I episode. I remember the Tribbles. I yeah, but like, this. but that's kind of the extent of your engagement with it. I, in fact, own the entire original TV series on disc and I have watched every episode probably 10 times. Uh, my favorite character is and always has been Lieutenant Nyota Uhura. She was the communications officer for the starship and had a pretty vital role on the bridge of the starship. So it's kind of a big deal. Oh yeah, she was also a black woman. Did I mention that? No, I forgot. Oh, let me tell you. She's a black woman, which in the 1960s was a big deal. Big deal. The Didn't actress Kurt kiss her in one episode and that was like the big deal. Oh my gosh, hold on. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So Nichelle Nichols was the actress that played her in the original series. Nichelle was a singer who was on Broadway. And after the first season, she wanted to resign from Star Trek. She wanted to quit the show and because she was going to focus on her Broadway career. The show was like, mm, I really don't want you to do that. So they said, you know what? Take the weekend. Think about it. And she was like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'm going to come in on Monday. I'm still quitting, whatever, but fine. Bye. That very weekend, though, Nichelle attended an NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP fundraiser, mm -hmm. and ran into Martin Luther King Jr. You might have heard of him. Because mm -hmm. uh, what happened was, apparently, did you read about this? Mm -hmm, I did. Yeah, so her people came to her and they were like, oh, hey, like your biggest fan is here. You got to go meet him. And she was like, Okay. And she was expecting just some, possibly a kid, whatever. And then MLK Jr. himself is standing in front of her. He he's a huge Trekkie, loved her on the show, huge fan. So she was flattered, but like she kind of casually mentioned that she was leaving the show and he was like, uh, no, you're not. We're there. And by we, he meant the black community. We're there because you're there. See, Star Trek imagined a future where, as MLK spoke about, people were not judged by their race, their culture, their color of the skin, anything. 
Uhura was the best of the best in communications. So nobody cared that she was a black woman. She was included because she had skills and no one cared about anything else. Technically, she was fourth in command on the ship too. So that's a pretty big deal. MLK told her, quote, this is not a black role. This is not a female role. This is a unique role that brings to life what we are marching for, equality. So if a huge icon in the civil rights movement had just told you he's a huge fan and you got to stay on the show because you're representing, girl, you'd be thrilled. You would be like, oh my gosh, you're right. I never thought of it that way. Uh, no, she was not thrilled. She was like, you're ruining everything. I don't want that. Yeah, she was super mad because she didn't want to be in TV. But she thought about it and really actually didn't take the weekend to think about it. And by the end of the weekend, Michelle decided to stay on the show. And as Brenna mentioned, notably in 1968, Lieutenant Uhura and Captain Kirk shared a scripted on-screen interracial kiss, which was one of the first times that had literally ever happened ever, ever. It, it possibly was not the first time because there's some conflicting sources, but most people point to it as like, like because a, a lot of people watch the show. So mm -hmm. it's happening. It happened. And I, I mean, I, I adore Uhura and I really respect Michelle Nichols for making some tough choices because I mean, it definitely affected her life. Um, whenever we played Star Trek when we were little, do you remember me playing that with the kids at church? No. You were not in the same friend group as me, but we played it all the time. I was always Uhura because she was so rad. Um, I currently have a gorgeous Star Trek original series wallet with Uhura on it. She's just the best. So um, Catherine Johnson also thought so. Um, and unlike our BA Goldie, who never had any interest in going to space, she was perfectly happy here on Earth. Um, Catherine would have jumped at the chance to go to space if she truly was suited for it. Um, mm -hmm. One thing that Catherine particularly liked about Uhura being the comms officer was that Uhura was the best for the job. And science and math should always be that way. And so I want to end our episode with this quote that Catherine said, because it's how I feel about math. It's part of why I love math. It's part of why I think math is important. Quote, math was either right or wrong. And if you got it right, it didn't matter what color you were, which is true. Um, and that's why she and Mary and Dorothy and all the women computers of all races are BAs, period. So yeah. there you have it. There you have our extravaganza, two episode extravaganza on the hidden figures who are not so hidden anymore, which I think is great. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, do you want to talk sources? We got to keep it. I mean, we can't name all of them because I had like probably 50 for these two episodes. There were a, yeah, got a ton. NASA was obviously a source. Mine too. Different different things um again hidden figures by margarelli shetterly my remarkable journey by katherine johnson those are like my two main you know go-tos for information but yeah i'm not gonna read them all I, tons tons of random 
websites and I mean, they're not random, but there's just a lot of them. So I won't read them all out here. Yeah. But we'll post them. Yeah, no, mine, my mind were the same. And I, I spent a lot of time on history.com, nasa.gov, uh, Margot Lee Shutterly's book. I read a cool, there was this really cool thing from, there was this thing that they had called the space Congress where they all got together and talked about space stuff. Hmm. Yeah. I like, I don't know a lot about it. I didn't research too much into it, but there was a, there was something from the space, like, and of course, because it's the government, they like wrote everything down. So there was this thing called the space Congress proceedings. And these two guys wrote a paper on it and it was on the scout launch vehicle program. Hmm. And it was this like, yeah, this like government meeting about it that I, and I read it, the papers were obviously declassified and I read everything. It was so cool. So yeah. Anyway, very cool sources a bazillion. Um, so check those out when uh, we post them on Facebook. Um, so yeah, so this is our last episode. So we don't have an episode teaser for like our next one because it's not till September. Uh, do you want to tease anything from season four that's coming up? I don't have anything off the top of my head. I mean, we got reptiles, we got botany, we got uh, drama, much drama as you guys have all come to love. That's why we picked these BAs, so especially in our first episode. There's a lot of tea in, the, in our first episode. That's going to be a fun one. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, do you have anything else today? No. I don't either. So until next time, live dangerously, do science and math.